Today's episode of the Sensory Friendly Solutions Podcast on the Unsettled Media Podcast Network is brought to you by Sensory Friendly Solutions. Discover sensory friendly solutions for daily life. To learn more, head to sensoryfriendly.net. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to a very special episode of the Sensory Friendly Solutions Podcast. It's a bonus episode. As we come to the end of our series, as we come to the end of season one, we wanted to bring you a very special episode of the show with someone who needs no introduction, Dr. Temple Grandin. Dr. Temple Grandin is well known to many for her trailblazing work as a spokesperson for people with autism and her lifelong work with animal behavior. Dr. Grandin has been with Colorado State University for over 25 years. Grandin has been referred to as the most famous person working at CSU by her peers. Her life's work has been to understand her own autistic mind and to share that knowledge with the world aiding in the treatment of individuals with the condition. Her understanding of the human mind has aided her in her work with animal behavior, and she is one of the most respected experts in both autism and animal behavior in the world. For a very special bonus episode of the Sensory Friendly Solutions podcast, we're pleased to give you Dr. Temple Grandin. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to a very special episode of the Sensory Friendly Solutions Podcast. You've been with us so far for 10 episodes, our very first season. We've talked to some real industry pioneers, and I feel like I've had the real good fortune to have conversations with all of those folks. And we wanted to bring you a very special bonus episode with Dr. Temple Grandin. Dr. Temple Grandin certainly needs no introduction. She's been on far larger stages than this, but we thank her so much for giving us her time. Nonetheless, Dr. Temple Grandin, welcome to the Sensory Friendly Solutions Podcast. It's really good to be here today. Thank you so much. Where do we find you right now physically? Can Am I going to guess? Are you in Colorado? Is that right? I'm in Colorado at home, but due to COVID, all my travel's been canceled since uh, March 1st. I've not been on a plane. And I have not been out of the state of Colorado, just to, gone to a few driving things, and that's it. Do you? Does that make you feel a little cooped up? Because I know you're a big flyer. Well, haven't done any flying. I, <laughs> I'm one of the ones that stayed home during Thanksgiving, and I plan to not travel during Christmas either. Yeah. Dr. Temple Grandin, I said in the beginning, you don't need an introduction. There's lots of folks who know you. But I'm curious, when you do a talk or when you do a podcast, do you simply introduce yourself by name or do you put some qualifier on the end, author, speaker, researcher, or do you just say it's Dr. Temple Grandin? No, I'll just tell you what I'm going to do. I'm Temple Grandin. I'm a professor of animal science at Colorado State University, uh, author. Um, uh, I've written books on animal behavior, books on autism. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I was a little kid, I had all the full-blown symptoms of autism, no speech till age four. Mm. And 
from a sensory standpoint, loud noises hurt my ears, sudden loud noises like a dentist drill hitting a nerve. Mm. When the grown-ups talk fast, I thought grown-ups actually had a special grown-up language because they just sound like, oh, no, 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 no. So my speech teacher would slow down and she'd hold up a cup or some other thing and she'd say cup, get me to say it. And then she'd say cup, huh? And she'd go back and forth between saying it very slowly and enunciating it. Because when people slow down, then I can hear. Now, I still have got problems with hearing when there's a lot of background noise. Like in a noisy restaurant, I'm basically functioning deaf, mm-hmm. which makes uh, some of those places just not very much fun. Mm-hmm. And one of my top priorities for research is sensory problems. And you can have them in autism, you can have them in ADHD, you can have them in sensory processing disorder. A lot of dyslexic have sensory problems. It'd be my number one research priority. Mm-hmm. But one of the problems we've got on studying this is that one person may have visual sensitivities, another one touch sensitivities, another one auditory sensitivities. And when you study these, you've got to separate them out. You can't just mix them all together because you're just not going to get any results. And that's one of the mistakes that's been made in research. So with that added research complication, you've already got me thinking. With that research complication, are you focusing on teaching other researchers how to break this down by category to better get your results? Well, one of the problems is they use the category of autism, dyslexia, sensory processing disorder. They would be better off if they use the category, well, this person has auditory processing problems and they're not hearing auditory detail clearly. And there's tests for these auditory processing. And I was mixing up lifeboat and light bulb, for example, especially when I just had to listen with one ear. Mm. Uh, you know, most of the time I have to figure those words out through context. Mm. Another, other people, um, I had a student who had very severe uh, visual scrambling. Her visual system would pixelate. I don't have this problem. You need to take people that have the, this problem and study. And a lot of these people that have this visual problem will complain that the print jiggles on the page. Hmm. And I've had several students, and I can tell when they have this problem because they absolutely cannot look. If I tell them to draw a circle, they draw a squiggle. And they'll complain about the print jiggling. So I've had to go out and try some light blue paper. Try some tan hmm. or gray, just real pale pastel papers. And I've seen that in some cases save a college career. Tan paper in the printer, lavender paper in the printer, but it's got to be the pale uh, colors. And the person has to choose a color that works for them. And, and uh, nobody knows how it works. All it's known is in the back of the brain, you have to assemble a graphics file. The eye works like a camera, but the brain seems to split it up into color, shape, motion, and texture. And those circuits have to work together. And when strokes break these circuits, you get strange things like losing color vision or not having smooth motion vision. You might have stopped motion coffee pouring, something like this. And uh, it's going to make vision probably not your most favorite sense. A lot of these people prefer auditory and I was at a meeting where a lady had a head injury, and um, I had a book with um, some pastel pages in it. She happened to look at light yellow, and she says, I can see the print. This, hmm. this is just saving me. And it's such a simple thing to try. And some people might say, well, that's not evidence-based. Well, if something's really safe and cheap like colored paper, I'm going to just go ahead and try it. Because sometimes it just might work. It doesn't explain all dyslexia. Only a subtype. But there's some people where the print jiggles on the page, this can really help them out. And I'm already getting ahead of myself here, but this is so fascinating. 
Am I right in saying you had a specific, unique ability to think about this visual set and setting? In your TED Talk, you said how much this helped you in designing materials for the animal research world, like cattle pens, for example, because you had a unique ability to visually see what set and setting would be the most impactful. Now, this is types of thinking, which mm-hmm. is different than types of sensation. I'm what's called an object visualizer. All my thoughts are pictures. Like when I start talking about the colored paper, I'm not just seeing the book table where I showed the lady the book and she was just so pleased. Object visualizer, my thoughts are in pictures. Then you have the visual spatial. This is your more mathematical thinker. And in designing things, you have the, the industrial designer side, that's the visual thinker like me, then you have the more mathematical engineering side, programming side of things. And then you've got people that are strictly a word thinker. Everything they think about is in words. Now, people that have visual processing problems tend to not be visual thinkers because the visual systems is kind of too distorted, especially when they get tired. Um, students that I've had that have got this problem, they tend to be auditory thinkers. They'd much rather just listen to the podcast. They could care less about the video. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And we're going to get into the types of thinkers when we get into what is a really interesting discussion around education in students with different kinds of thinking. But before that, with your permission, I'd like to dig a little bit deeper into um, COVID. Uh, I was listening to you on the Meat and Poultry podcast, and you mentioned how it was March 12th, I believe, when you knew you were officially grounded. Is that right? Yep, and I didn't really think I was going to still be grounded almost practically on December 1st. And I could um, tell because I you said... we'd be back up in the air way before now. Yes, you were talking about your engagements in September that had been canceled and we're now almost December. Um, I wanted to ask you, Dr. Grandin, um, we've heard a lot as a theme throughout the course of this podcast about the importance of routine in the autism community and with routine disruption, this was from Maureen Benny of the Autism Awareness Center, there can be side effects to that routine disruption. Have During COVID, have you set yourself on a routine? You mentioned being up, ready for work, 8 a.m. Yes, every day. Have to do it. And I suggest that people might want to look at life on the International Space Station. You've Hmm. now got seven people up there right now living in a very confined space. And one thing NASA's learned is they have to have a schedule and they have their schedule of work, exercise time. They have a midday meal. They're all expected to get together for the midday meal. They also have scheduled time off. And Scott Kelly, who spent a year on the space station, said that the schedule was really, really essential. Um, and, and when they first started space stations, they didn't do this. And they had problems like crews getting mad, turning off mission controls, which is clearly not acceptable. Mm-hmm. But uh, NASA's learned some stuff on how and having a schedule. I get up. I'm, I'm working on a new book on visual thinking. Mm. I, I've got to have things to do. I've got some other writing uh, problems lined up, a um, chapter on animal welfare auditing I'm going to do, uh, another paper on COVID and animal welfare. And, you know, I've just got to have stuff to do. Mm. Have so you thought I get about up in the morning and I do a lot of writing in the morning. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Have you thought about the interpretation of why routine disruption 
or maintaining a routine can be so beneficial? Is it a sense of control? Is it a sense? Is it a sense of I know what's coming? Well, if I don't get up in the morning and take a shower, like I, I feel noticeably better when I get out of that shower. Mm. And then after a couple of days, I slouched around in my sleepwear, and it was a big mistake. I've got to get up, make myself do it, and we're going to sit down and do the really difficult writing and the hard work in the morning. I do a walk in the afternoon. Try to schedule a lot of these conferences in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. Um, but and you've also got to schedule stuff to do, and and I. Uh, you can't just be just laying around. Mm-hmm. You mentioned your afternoon walk. I'm always curious about the daily rituals that people can't miss. Do you have a daily ritual you can't miss? Well, the most important thing is the getting up in the morning, not sleeping in. Uh-huh. And now I never switched over to the, um, I just stayed on the summertime time. Now it's ready for work at seven o'clock mm-hmm. because I'm, I use light to extend my photo period. And that's helped a whole lot on depression. So I get up. I do have my sleepwear on. I get breakfast and I'll sit and read for an hour with sleepwear on. Then shower, dressed for work. Now it's at seven o'clock, not eight o'clock. Mm-hmm. Because, and I'm finding if I don't do that, then I really don't, don't feel very good. Mm-hmm. And you've got to find stuff to do. I mean, these are a good time to teach a lot of social skills. And and uh, Home Depot, a company that sells lumber and stuff like that, they, they're doing just great. The gardening people did just great. Get other things started. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You on have to make web- a new schedule. On your website, in big, bold print, I read the words, too much screen time has a bad effect on child development. And during COVID, we've always wondered, is there societal effects of all the things we're going on right now? Obviously, we're doing this via Zoom. There's lots of technology being used. Is too much screen time for child development a negative thing? Well, I'm very concerned about little kids being out of school, kids under 10. Just this week, I was visiting with a teacher. I went and visited a little small horse show just to get out. We socially distanced, really fun little horse show. Mm -hmm. And there was a second grade teacher there. It was just this Monday. And she was working with low-income students. And she's told me half her second grade students, that would be eight-year-old students, are not logging in. And she calls the parents and they don't do anything. That's really atrocious. And these real young kids, these are the ones who need to get back into schools. And I was reading how Germany was doing it. They put them together like eight students in a class and a teacher, and that's a pod. Uh And then somebody gets sick, they just quarantine that pod, not the whole school. Uh Uh-huh. And that's what they're doing. we got to get these little ones back in school. They're they're the most important. And that's just atrocious. That's a teacher I just talked to just within the last week. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that Home Depot, things like gardening, people people doing that building project they were neglecting because they're at home now. And in your TED Talk, I was fascinated to hear how you are concerned that taking skilled trades, those tactile trades out of schools um, would potentially have negative knock-on effects for unique thinkers or well, thinkers who are on the autism spectrum. On losing skills, too. There's two parts of engineering. There's the object visual like me that design that really clever things Then you have the degreed engineers. Now, I've worked on construction projects, every major meat company, including in Canada, um, on great big, gigantic new plants being built. There's a very, very interesting division of labor. The mathematical engineers do the boilers and the refrigeration. Mm -hmm. But all the very intricate, clever equipment that goes inside, um, we're having to import it now from Europe because we're not making it anymore. 
And that goes back to taking skilled trades out 25 years ago. Hmm. And I was just reading an article in one of my magazines, a New Yorker magazine, about a carpenter, the super high-end carpentry work, real fancy houses, beautiful carpentry work. Well, that's a very high-end skilled trade. But I'm seeing kids growing up today that have never used never used tools. And that's why I came up with my little book, Calling All Minds. It's my childhood projects. Because we've got maybe 25% of all kids today, at least in outside of Denver, have never made a paper airplane. Hmm. That's just ridiculous. They're not making things. And I'm concerned that our educational system is screening out us visual thinkers that like to build stuff. And you need us. You need us a whole lot. When I was thinking about that, it resonated so much with me because as a technology-oriented person, I noticed I started to lose the ability to manipulate things in my head in 3D because I wasn't one of those tactile people that you're describing. And I wonder, is there, have you considered, is there, I know you're a very thoughtful person. Is there some use of technology that would allow us to still leverage those abilities? Like for example, what if we used VR for on the job training, or is it just not the same as really getting dirty with your hands and making you gotta stuff? Just, you got to just do it. You've got to just do things. I was using tools when I was eight years old. And I learned how to use them carefully. And I was using a little saw when I was about 10 years old. Mm. And you just learn how to use it carefully. But I'm seeing kids that are really good with Legos. Um, nobody thought they introduced tools. And they're all they're becoming their label. They're not learning um, uh, shopping. They're not learning bank account. Just basic, basic things that they need to be learning. They're not learning. Mm-hmm. And And let's look at something like Zoom. The reason why Zoom took over everything is because the interface is easy to use. Mm-hmm. You see, that's the object visualizer. Somebody like me would have designed the interface. Then the programmers have to make the programming work. You see, you have to have both. They are both important. And then you laid that other program on me that didn't come up easily <laughs> at all, a little techie program. And then one time I was doing a Zoom conference to Brazil, yep. and the entire server for Zoom crashed in Brazil, so they – they um, sent me another link, something called Mm streamyard.com. I can tell you right now, it's a good interface. I used it with no training. That's the kind of interface I like. I figured out how to get on it and it worked just fine. I love this idea of diverse thinking because you mentioned Silicon Valley more than once in your TED talk. And it makes me think exactly as you're saying, there's a type of engineer that writes the software There's there's the visual thinker that's going to do the user interface, the user interaction. And that visual, um, that visual sense, that visual talent is what you have. Does standardized education not do us justice because we're not standardized thinkers? Well, the problem is the algebra requirements are screening out a lot of these kids. I cannot do algebra. I've never passed algebra. I managed to get out of it because thank goodness in 67, it wasn't the required math class. (laughs) <laughs> they had this thing called finite math with statistics, probability, and matrices. And with tutoring, mm-hmm. I got through it because it, it was a bit more visual. Uh, but the thing is, you, we need the different kinds of minds. And you have engineering, but the other field is industrial design. And that is the art side of designing things. And these skills can be complementary. And you need to have both. And I didn't realize how bad this was until last year. I went to a beautiful, brand-new, state-of-the-art poultry plant. And we had done the um, boilers and refrigeration, the building, make sure the roof doesn't fall down. That part of what we did, all the equipment came over from 100 shipping containers from Holland. 
beautiful mm-hmm. equipment. And I stood there on this catwalk and I screamed, we don't make it anymore. And I am going to go back and I'm going to really blast educators about this. Yes. And we need to stop sticking our nose up at high-end skilled trades. And I just read this article in the New Yorker magazine about this uh, carpenter that's doing this very high-end fancy carpentry work. He's got a great career. Yeah. I would like to read something that I believe you wrote. Um, It's very quick, but there's a point to me reading this. And so I'll read it and then I'll ask my question. Rigid academic and social expectations could wind up stifling a mind that while it might struggle to conjugate a verb, could one day take us to distant stars. And I'm a writer. And one of the things that I love about that is it's so beautiful. Um, It makes a point, but it's beautifully written. Do you see progress in that regard? Are those rigid expectations loosening or do we still have a lot of work to do? We still have a lot of it. And I did my book, The Autistic Brain. I'll hold it up here for the people that will be watching the video. (laughs) And I present the science for the two kinds of thinkers, the object visualizer and then the visual spatial math visualizer. That book was published in 2013. There's now been a bunch more studies. And one of the newer studies is showing that you're not going to find a super good object visualizer and a more mathematical visual spatial visualizer in the same person. They're actually kind of opposite skills. And the thing is, we need our visual thinkers to prevent messes like Fukushima. Mm. I don't know how they made that mistake. How could you put an electrically driven emergency cooling pump in a non-waterproof basement where there's tsunamis? And that pump's not going to work when it gets flooded. Watertight doors would have saved it. See, the engineers don't see it. So that's potentially what we lose. I see it. I see the water filling the basement, and uh, this pump's not going to run an electric motor. And when I need that emergency cooling pump, I really need it. Mm. Well, it failed to work. And that's potentially an example of if we lose diversity of thought, we could run into a scenario such as that. Well, I found out there actually was a second Fukushima plant, and their manager managed to save it. It was on a little bit higher ground. Mm -hmm. It had some watertight doors, but some of it got flooded. And the plant manager knew every nook and cranny in the place, and he basically got giant extension cords from a single operating generator over the two reactors that were getting really hot really fast. Mm-hmm. You know, see, I, know, I'm, I think there's a good chance he was a visual thinker. And when I told my student about it, she says, oh, that's just giant extension cords. Real thick ones. In the description of the TED Talk, the three distinct types of thinkers, and this really stood out to me, was visual, pattern, and verbal. Is that also how you characterize? Well, that's the way I characterized them originally. But now in mm-hmm. the scientific literature, they're now characterizing a visual thinker as the object visualizer. So if you want to look at some of the research, you've got to use search word object visualizer. The pattern thinker in the scientific literature is called visual spatial. And the problem with an awful lot of studies is they're mixing in when they do the study object visualizers and the more mathematical thinkers together all under visual spatial. They are not the same. Mm-hmm. See, in your brain, you have circuits for what is something. That's the picture thinking. That's me. And the visual spatial is where are you located in space? Mm. That's the more mathematical thinker. Mm-hmm. And the research is really clear. And then a lot of people are kind of mixtures of you know these things. And then you've got people that are totally a word thinker, absolutely a word thinker. Think completely in words. 
In episode nine of the podcast, I really was excited to ask you this question because I was curious as to what you meant. On your website, you have written, have high but reasonable expectations. And in episode nine of our podcast, we spoke to a woman named Trish Hamilton. She's the mother of a young boy with autism. And she talked about the need to push her son sometimes, even when it might be uncomfortable to get him out there into the world. What did you mean by have high but reasonable expectations? Well, don't try to, you know, go from a crawl to a running a marathon overnight. Right. What I what my mother did with me is she stretched me just slightly outside my comfort zone and gave me choices. And there's a tendency to overprotect. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these kids need to be gotten out. I had a choice when I was 15 and I could go to my aunt's ranch for a week or I could go for all summer. Not going wasn't a choice. Mm-hmm. I got out there and I loved it. And if I hadn't gone to my aunt's ranch, I wouldn't have been in the cattle industry. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm seeing, we've got to just stretch. Now I'll tell you some things we don't do. Multitasking. This is a problem because basically a person on this, uh, with a sensory processing disorder doesn't process quickly. So a super crazy busy takeout window at McDonald's be a bad choice for job. Don't that's chucking into the deep end. We don't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, multitasking. Also, I cannot remember long strings of verbal information. So if I have to take apart some machine, and when I worked at a dairy, I had to you know take apart dairy equipment, set it up. They actually had a pilot's checklist on the wall, set up steps, cleaning steps. And if that pilot's checklist hadn't been there, I would have been in trouble. I cannot remember long strings of verbal information. Also, I'm a slow processor. So a lot of people with sensory processing problems are gonna be slow to respond. You know, imagine if you're a computer, you're the Intel 286, mm. tiny processor, but you got huge memory. You've got the um, huh. Microsoft or Amazon cloud for memory. Uh-huh. That's a great description. I was I was interested about Mr. Carlock. Um, can you tell us about Mr. Carlock and who he was in your life? He was my science teacher, and he was the one responsible for getting me from being an awful student who had no motivation to study to study. And he started out giving me really interesting projects. And the HBO movie showed the optical illusion room and all of the projects I did. I loved that part of it. And what he did for me is he made studying not something just to please the family, but studying became a pathway to a goal. If I wanted Mm. to become a scientist, I would have to study. So he did things and he showed me how scientists read scientific journal articles. I didn't know what a scientific journal article was. And of course there was no internet then. So he took me to the great big library down in Boston and uh, and looked at, at scientific journal articles. And then they had these big indexes like the psychological abstracts, the index medicus. And we didn't even have a copy machine in the library. He had to copy abstracts onto cards and stick them in recipe boxes. <laughs> I remember I was two years into college and we got a five cent copy machine. I thought, I oh, that was the best thing that ever happened. <laughs> I'm, I would have never have dreamed when I was in college back in the late 60s that I could have the library in my pocket. Mm. That was beyond my imagination. Our future, like on our library's time capsule, they put a telephone dial on it for dial access (laughs) material. Does your experience with Mr. Carlock speak to the importance of mentors? Yes. Mentors are very important. Mm -hmm. I had a great teacher in third grade. My speech teacher was excellent. My mother taught me reading. So I, and I learned with phonics, not with sight words. Mm-hmm. I was one of those. 
there also was a very good contractor who was just starting his business and he'd seen my drawings and he seeked me out to design jobs. He was a former Marine Corps captain and he put together a really diverse team to get his small company started. And he built those dip vat projects that were shown in the movie. And he'd seen my drawings. And just today, somebody emailed me about um, how do we get jobs for people on the spectrum? The way I used to do interviews, lay the drawings out on the table, show the work, show the photos. If the person's a programmer, they should put some code out there to show. Not too much stuff. You want a 30 second while. But I learned to sell the work rather than myself. Mm. I'd also built up a reputation of being a really good livestock editor for our state farm magazine. Mm -hmm. At the end of your TED talk, Chris Anderson asked you what you're passionate about. And I loved your answer. And I was wondering, has the answer changed at all? Or does that passion remain? And maybe if it does remain, you could reiterate what you what you responded to Chris. Well, I, I'm interested right now and I want to see kids that are different and adults. I want to see people get out and be successful. Yeah, That's what I want to see. It makes me really happy now. I, you know, now at the age of 73 years old, I'm way past retirement age. Somebody writes to me, well, your book helped my kid go to college or my kid got a job because of something you said on a podcast. Uh, I kind of want to help the younger ones, you know, to get out there and be successful. And, and I'm I've been doing a lot of thinking about identity. Mm. Autism's never been my primary identity. When I started out in the cattle industry back in the early 70s, being a woman was 10 times the barrier than autism, 10 huh. times the barrier. I had to be much better than the guys. And for me, you know, scientists, designer, you know, animal behavior, that comes first. Autism is an important part of who I am. I wouldn't want to change because I like the logical way I think. And I'm seeing too many people, you know, becoming the label. Now, I think that's great to get out there and do activism, but you're going to be a better activist if you can show what people can do. Mm. Like, I really like things like these companies that are deliberately hiring people on the spectrum, like a Spiritech, for example. They test websites. Uh, they test fancy headphones. I can't tell you what, what brand of headphones are, but very fancy high-end headphones to make sure they'll work with every possible combination of devices hmm. because they don't leave anything out. And they saved one company thousands of dollars because they found that when a website got, got updated, that a phone number had been transposed in one region. Well, you see, that's attention to detail. Right. That's something that, you know, autistic people can do really well. In Israel right now, they're using autistic people to analyze satellite photos. Wow. Because of that attention to detail. That's right. That's taking advantage. And then I've been out to Silicon Valley. Half those programmers are on the spectrum and they avoid the labels. <laughs> I remember going to this great big room. It was only about a year and a half ago. There were 100 programmers in a big, long bench desk. Mm. Totally silent. Headphones clapped on. Different stuff going on on their computers. Each one was working on something different. Mm. Totally engaged in it. Dr. Grandin, let me tell you, this is an absolute pleasure. Um, I feel really, really lucky to have had the chance to virtually be in your kitchen. I know from all the listeners here at the Sensory Friendly Solutions podcast, they're going to be really excited about this bonus episode. And I thank you for being you. I thank you for the opportunity. And I thank you for being on the Sensory Friendly Solutions podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you to our sponsor, Taking It Global. 
ensuring that youth around the world are actively engaged and connected in shaping a more inclusive, peaceful, and sustainable world. As part of their Rising Youth Initiative, they're looking for young people who are inspired with ideas and ready to take action through youth-led community service grants. Head to risingyouth.ca to learn more and to become the next Rising Youth grant recipient. The podcast is also supported by New Brunswick Community College as part of the Community Resource Awareness During and After COVID-19 Applied Research Project, funded by the New Brunswick Innovation Foundation. Learn more about NBCC's efforts to transform lives and communities at nbcc.ca. The Sensory Friendly Solutions podcast is produced by me, Matt George, is engineered by the great Zachary Pelche, and is part of the Unsettled Media Podcast Network.